You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. This past week, I was on my bike, and I was at an intersection, and I was stopped at a stop sign. You know, the Burke Gilman Trail actually has stop signs. And, um, and there was another car that was on a road that didn't have a stop sign, was crossing over the Burke Gilman Trail, and we were both stopped, both looking at each other, waving at each other, you know, like <laughs> this. And it's awkward. I don't know how many of you have encountered this awkwardness at these intersections. There's one right here at UW. And, um, I'm sure the guy in the other car is thinking, you know, I'm going to stay here until you go because I don't want to run over bikes. And I know bikes don't stop at stop signs, right? And I'm thinking, I want you to hurry up and go because I, I know that bikes don't stop at stop signs and there's someone who's behind me who's about to be right up my fender. So get, you know, through the uh, intersection. As we're sitting there waving at each other, I'm kind of chuckling to myself and I'm going, uh, this is not so much about who has a right, uh, but who has a reason to take second place. And I want to talk to you today about taking second place in your life, the nobility of second place. A little countercultural. We're studying the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we're asking ourselves the question, what does this prayer have to teach us about prayer, about great prayer, but also about true spirituality? And what's the kind of life that actually would pray this prayer? I think this prayer gives us insight into the disposition of the soul that truly embraces life, embraces the life that Jesus wants to give us. So as we study this prayer, we're going to see that it's it's got about seven parts to it. It's got an address, and we looked at that last week. Our Father in Heaven, it's the address. And then six petitions. Three you petitions, Y-O-U, and then you've got uh, three us petitions, S-U-S. Um, and in each of these seven elements, I would say we find seven postures of true spirituality. Seven postures. And the first one we talked about last uh, week, it's the posture of privilege. Uh, this prayer encourages us to live with the privilege of Jesus, to stand before his Father as he stands and claim all of the privileges that are rightfully his. Now they're ours. Now the second posture we come to today, it's the posture of adoration. Adoration. And I want to suggest to you today that we live the most when we love what's best in life. That's my claim. So let's turn to uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, as Ryan told us. uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And if you're looking at the Pew Bible, please turn to page 787. Love you to pull it out so that we can stand together and read God's Word as a congregation. Matthew 6, verse 7, down to uh, the end of the prayer at verse 13. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. 
As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. So here's the first petition, first posture. Hallowed be thy name, verse 9b. In our translation, uh, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. Now, this really surprised me this week. i got to say, all my Christian life, I've been praying this prayer, and it wasn't until this week that I realized how weird it is that Jesus teaches us to pray by asking us first not to pray for ourselves, but to pray for God. Think about that. Pray for God? What? Who am I to pray for God? And what does it even mean to pray for God? But apparently, God wants a holy name, and he wants you to pray for it. Isn't this interesting? So there's a, a surprise here. I know everything. I mean, I know a lot. I won't say everything. I know a lot about what it means to pray for my needs, to pray for bread. I know a lot about what it means to pray for the world, to pray for a kingdom. But what does it mean to pray for God and his name? Well, let's look for a moment at the words involved here. When the Bible speaks of a name, it doesn't speak of it in the same way that we typically do, where for us a name is like just a label that you use to refer to somebody. No, in the Bible, the name is an expression of essence. It's almost a symbol. It expresses and reveals the essence of a thing. So, for example, uh, we're told in the Old Testament that Abraham's name means the father of many nations. And Israel's name means he wrestles with God. And Joshua's name means he saves. And Peter's name means rock, Petros, rock. And so in the same way, when we're thinking about God's name, we're thinking about the word that expresses his essence, so that it reveals his essence. What about hallow? What does it mean to hallow something? Well, to make it holy. Okay, but what's holy? The root meaning of the word holy means separate or distinct. To make someone something holy is to set it apart, usually for God. That's holy. So when we speak about God's holiness, we're saying, in essence, that God is separate or distinct from creation. He's not a part of creation. More than that, he's above creation. He's not like it. I mean, if there is anything like him, he's like that in ma infinite matters of, of degree more so. So, like, uh, his goodness is goodness beyond and above goodness. His wisdom is wisdom beyond and above wisdom. His justice is justice beyond and above justice. His love is love beyond love. Okay, so you get the idea. Let's put these two ideas together then. Name the word that reveals essence and hallow to set something above. And I think to hallow God's name means let the prayer, the petition would be asking God to let the word that reveals your essence be above all other words. The word that reveals your essence, God, be above all other words. Make yourself known as the most beautiful of all beings. Reveal your true self, infinite beyond infinitude. So, in essence, we're saying, God, I want you to put yourself in first place. First place, you. Reveal yourself as the one who is being above being. 
greatness above the greatest. Let us so love you that we will love all else for your sake, for your glory, and because we love you so much. So this is why I say I think this is really a petition of adoration, adoration. It has a way of inviting us into second place. Now, let's step back from this. That's what it means, but, but why would anyone want to do that? I mean, can you understand how countercultural this is? I didn't want to preach this sermon this week. It was so challenging to me. I'm not even sure I understand what it means, let alone have the ability to convince you of this, that it's better to live your life in second place to God. Well, let me give you a few reasons why. And the first is this, and this is really the big idea for the day. We live the most when we love what's best. This is really about priority. And you become what you love, don't you? So why not love the best? It'll bring out the most life in your life. The Bible teaches us, actually, you and I are made to love God. Genesis 1 says, here's this picture. The first chapter, God is creating. He's making it good, 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 good. And he goes, no, it's a pinnacle of creation. I'm going to make a human being the best makes us in his image. We read Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. You're made good to reflect the goodness of your maker. This is the, your life purpose. And so the rest of the Bible teaches this too. 1 Corinthians 10:31 says, do everything for the glory of God. Colossians 1:16 says, all things have been created through him and for him. Those of us of a certain age remember the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Good Presbyterian, Sandy, way to go. You got it, right? That's what we're made for, to glorify God and to enjoy him. In essence, then, I think what this text invites us to, and this prayer of adoration, is to walk on holy ground. To walk on holy ground. The first time that the word holy is used in the whole Bible is when uh, God tells Moses he's on holy ground. Uh, we talked about this last week, the burning bush. There he is, and God says, uh, Moses, you're going to need to take off your shoes because this is holy ground. He's hallowed it. He's set it apart. He's claimed it for himself. And the next time holy ground comes up is in the next generation. Now, Joshua is an old man. He's a military man. Uh, is on the eve of a, a very frightening crisis. The Israelites are about to cross over in the promised land. There's one problem with that. It's already occupied. And uh, <laughs> what the general knows is that they are a Bronze Age people about to go to battle with an Iron Age people. Israel's right on the cusp of that transition, and they, they are vastly outgunned uh, by the city of Jericho, which is, which is what's, what's right there. And so you can just picture Joshua pacing back and forth in the darkness of a night, lonely as only general can be, fearing for his life, and more importantly, the lives of his people. And I guess he's praying. Um, but he sees a man coming towards him who looks like him, a military man. And I want you to read this story with me, or I'm going to read it for you. But let's turn our Bibles over, because you really got to see this to understand it. Joshua chapter 5, um, verse 13. It's on page 171, if you, you want to... Get there with page numbers. Look at this passage. Here's Joshua in crisis. And I'll read it to you. Verse 13 says, Once, when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Hmm. That's verse 13. 
Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? And the man, this figure with a drawn sword, replied, Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I've come now. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, What do you command your servant, my lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This is really a fascinating little story. Um, He looks like a regular soldier, but we learn from what he says to Joshua, he's not. And all scholars will tell you, this is a revelation of the Lord. Some scholars feel this is actually a pre-incarnate visitation of the Son of God. And, and uh, yet whatever he is, he's, he's just come to disclose the essence of God in some way in this moment to Joshua. And uh, Joshua asks him the logical question on the eve of a battle, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you with Jericho? And what kind of response does he get? Wrong question, Joshua. <laughs> the question is not, am I on your team? The question is, are you on my team? So there's a, there's a, a paradigm shift uh, that's beginning to go on for, for Joshua. In essence, there are two stories going on. This mysterious figure tells Joshua, God has a story and you have a story. And there's an invitation here. God is not willing to be a character in your story, but invites you to be a character in his story. Notice how Joshua responds. What does he do? He worships. Adoration. Wow. There's something beautiful, compelling, awesome in front of him. Falls down and worships. And then what does he say? He says, what do you command me? What's that? That's putting himself in second place. Immediately, I want to be in second place to this. Yes, he says. Yes, he says to this essence of God. And then this soldier says to him, well, take off your shoes because the ground you're on is holy ground. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what you're going through today, but many of us are in crisis. And we have a sense of dread about even tomorrow. It's scary. That's our story. But God is coming to you in Jesus Christ to say, I have a story too, and you can insist that I be a character in your story, or you can accept my invitation to come into a bigger story. And there's great freedom in knowing you're a part of God's story. It's liberating. And the moment you realize that even today, right where you stand, you're a character in God's story, that's the moment you're standing on holy ground. You get it? That's the moment you take your shoes off and you say, it's not about me. It's about a great and beautiful and all-wise God. That's the hallowing of God's day. So what I'm saying is we live the most when we love what's best. God is best. Or you could also say we stoop in order to be elevated. That's, That's why we might pray this prayer. But there's another reason. The prayer of adoration helps us change our posture because it's not so easy to do. It's easy to say, but not so much to do. So we talk about priority, but here posture. If when you say, hallowed be thy name, in a prayer you're offering to the Lord, and it feels a little bit like a speed bump that you just have to get past on the way to getting what you really came for prayer to do or to get, 
then maybe you should take that as a diagnostic signal that you need to change your posture. Abraham Kuyper, the great elder statesman of the last century, told us that there are really only two types of spirituality. doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. There are only two types of spirituality. One I would call a spirituality of desperation, and the other I would call a spirituality of adoration. Kuyper says this, the most fundamental question of human spirituality is, quote, does religion exist for the sake of God or for man? When I first read that, I was totally confused. I thought either I don't understand that or the answer is totally obvious. Let me say it again. Does religion exist for the sake of God or for man? Now, if you say religion exists for the sake of man, which actually is what I said when I first encountered the question, then you have what Kuiper uh, would call, I think, a spirituality of desperation, which is religion exists for your sake. And, and when you need something, then you're a very religious person. Then you, all of your spirituality activates. And the essence of your spiritual life is saying, help me, right? I'm in desperation. Now, God does help us, and that's a good posture before God. And yet, if that's all you have when you come before God, then what happens when you no longer need his help? See, Kuiper writes at length about this. He says this kind of, uh, uh, of spirituality is great for poor people, and it's great for pre-scientific people. But either personally, when you get out of the dumps, or in society, when the, when, when the advances of science, quote, deliver us from the pressure of the cosmos, we throw away the crutches, and with a sneer at everything holy, go stumbling forward on our own poor legs. Well, I don't think we really need God anymore in America, do we? Be careful. That's a spirituality of desperation. The story about a guy who was going downtown to uh, an important business meeting, and he was running late, and so he did what I tend to do when I'm running late in a car, and I say, Lord, give me a parking space. I start to pray, and I'm praying fervently, as he was, and uh, he knew he should have planned, but as he's praying, he's starting to negotiate with God. It's another thing we commonly do. He says, if you give me a parking place in front of this building, I, I will, I'll go back to church. Uh, I'll start reading my Bible. I'll, uh, I'll even tithe. And uh, just as he says that, right in front of the door, a car pulls out in front. He says, oh, never mind, God. I just, got, I just found one. <laughs> right? And we call that a prayer life? Come on. No, the spirituality of adoration isn't built around, help me. It's built around, I love you. I love you. I see something in you that evokes something in me. And I want more of you than I can even receive. So Kuiper uh, uh, says this is really uh, about finding inspiration and, quote, admiration and adoration, which elevates and unites Adoration will elevate us and unite us to God. This is really about putting yourself in second place because you want God in first place. He, he's so hallowed his name. He's so revealed, spoken that one word of his essence so clearly. You, you, you see him now, and you want him uh, to be in first place. And so you, you take second, like Joshua. So it, it helps us change our, our posture. This hallowed be thy name, it's huge. It, it, it encourages a Copernican revolution in us. Last week, I saw a photo in the news that interested me. I want to, I want to show it to you. You may, you may have seen this. It's of three astronauts 
And uh, Jeff Williams, the American there with the other two cosmonauts, just spent just shy of six months uh, in outer space. And now they're back. This is uh, Kazakhstan. And, and notice they're sitting in these three folding uh, lazy boys. Do you know why they're sitting there? Because they can't stand. These are heroes, but they can't stand. They can't walk. Why? This is what happens to you after only six months of spinning around your own axis. <laughs> I want you to think about this. I'm serious. I live in what I call the Georgiocentric universe. That's where everything revolves around me. You revolve around me. You know, I hope it's good for you because it's great for me. Right? Luther says, his, Luther's definition of sin, it's the soul curved in on itself. Living for itself. It, just because it's fun to refresh my Latin. Homo incurvatus in se. Man curved back on itself. That's sin. When we say, hallowed be thy name, we say, I know I am meant to revolve around something that's bigger than myself. And I get strength from that. So would you work me through this Copernican revolution so that I, it's no longer you, God, my sun revolving around me, my earth, but me, the earth revolving around you, the sun. You get the idea. Prayer of adoration helps us change posture. This leads us to the third and final reason. The prayer of adoration gives us strength. There's priority here. There's a new posture. And most of all, there's power. It's surprising that the second place position would be stronger uh, than living in first place in your life. But there are really only two options. And one is to put yourself at the center of your life, and the other is to put something else. And the teaching is that when you put something else, who happens to be God in the center of your life, everything is different, maybe stronger. We tend to put our career or relationships, things that we desperately feel we need in the center of our life. God says, you know, what you most need is me, me. We have an epidemic, I think, today of depression and anxiety. We don't know what to live for. It's particularly acute among our students. Think about Michael Phelps. Um, this summer, maybe you saw this story. Michael Phelps is a guy who would say he's got great potential. Of course, he has a purpose for living. He's got all these gold medals, and he's best in his field. And his name is celebrated, if not hallowed. But what Phelps told the media this summer is that uh, his life just crashed. That his universe collapsed like a black hole upon an empty self. According to ESPN, he struggled to figure out who he was outside the pool. Spiraled into a deep depression and alcohol abuse. And he said, I thought the world would just be better off without me. I figured that was the best thing to do, just end my life. I was like a time bomb waiting to go off. And then, in rehab, a Copernican revolution. A football player gave him Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. And Michael Phelps, who fellow recoverees call him now the preacher, told people that the book turned me into believing, listen to this, that there is a power greater than myself. The book turned me into believing there's a power greater than myself, and there is a purpose for me on this planet. Those two things are linked. You see that? His soul is curving out of himself to the most worthy of all beings. 
Now, this reminded me of, of, uh, of a movie that you have to be of a certain age to remember, which is Chariots of Fire. Um, some of you remember this movie. If you're not of that age, I don't even know if it'd be interesting anymore because the pacing is so different from movies today. But, <laughs> but it's a movie about two characters. Um, it's true, it's about the 1924 Paris Olympics. And on the one hand, you have this Scottish man, Eric Little, and on the other hand, you have um, Harold Abrams. And Harold Abrams lives his life for the gold. That's, what his, that's at the center of his life. And he wins. Uh, he wins the gold medal, and it's devastating to him. It's just devastating. Why? Because he's been living his whole life for that. And then what do you live for when you get it? We tend to think we, we collapse when we don't get what we want. What about when you get what you want? What then? And on the other hand, there, there's this Eric Little guy who, who's, he, we're told in the movie, he, when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. For love, I run. I run. Yeah, he likes to win, but he runs for love. And it's because of this, he has a strength in his life to give up his event because the heat happens to fall on the Sabbath. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's, that it's that same strength that gives him the ability to live a heroic life. You know, he goes to China, serves as a missionary. He ended his life in an internment camp where he was doing nothing but caring for, ministering, sharing hope with the fellow prisoners, Eric Little. So it's a life in second place. There's a kind of moral courage that comes with this sort of adoration. Many of you live in underpaid jobs because you're serving people in ways that the culture doesn't thank or appreciate. When you do that, you can take second place in love for God. When you find yourself in an unequal marriage where the other partner doesn't seem to be pulling his or her weight and it's a painful experience day after day, you can take second position because of your love for God. When you're in a very competitive workplace where you're tempted to take credit and other people take it from you, you can allow people to be elevated as you stoop below them because of your love for God. When you find yourself in a, a relationship with a demanding client and the terms of the contract are ambiguous and a job keeps getting bigger and bigger and now you're not getting paid at all for it. In fact, you're paying to do the work for this client. You can take second place because of your love for God. When you read the Bible and you find these ethical parameters that you just don't understand, why would I have to do that? You'll be able to do it because of your love for God. You say, I don't have to know the reasons. All I know is I love him. It's great courage and strength. I just wonder, UPC, what it would be like for us really to be a second-place people, to be Seattle's second-place church, to come here every week because we know we need to come here every week to reposition ourselves back in second place before a God who deserves all of first place and come here and wonder and say, God, we give you all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. Would you hallow your name? Would you reveal yourself to us so that we can fully love you? What would be like for us to be a second-place people who serve one another and put each other's needs above our own needs? What would it be like to be a second-place church to put the needs of our neighbors ahead of our own needs? To be a second-place church among churches, to pray for other churches, to give financial resources to other churches, to help support them and their missions to whatever God calls them to do? Many years ago, I met a graduate student when I was working student ministry back east, and she asked a great question. She asked, how is it that someone can love God? This kind of stopped me short. This was a woman who was brilliant in many ways. She was gifted. She knew that Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. And she told me, I'm not even sure I believe in God, but I, I certainly don't know how to love 
a God. And I thought that was interesting. Whenever someone says that they don't believe in God, I always want to ask them, what God don't you believe in? Right? Because there are a lot of gods, lowercase g, that really aren't worthy of believing in. So which God is it that you don't believe in? But, but if you pray this prayer, hallowed be their name, you're asking God to, to define himself for you. You're being disabused of all your false and limited notions of what God really is and in being invited into something more. How is it that someone can love God? Well, I think prayer. Ask God to speak the word that reveals his essence in your life. God, make your name holy for me. You and I cannot manufacture love. All of our affections are limited, misdirected, bent. But when we see who God really is, love will grow. Uh, love is generated by its object, right? Think of a, a baby and a mom. It, what makes that child love her mom? It's when she looks into the face of her mother and sees that face. That mother's face will evoke love from within the heart of the child. And the truth is that God has spoken that word that reveals his essence in the name Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the name above all names, the visible expression of the invisible God, when we see the face of Jesus Christ on the cross, we see God in second place for you and for me. He comes to the cross to make the Father's name holy. And by the way, he comes to the cross to make your name holy as well. What's not to love? Well, finally, I was on my bike uh, this week, a couple days ago, and uh, it was leaves that were waving at me, not motorists. I had just ridden in the early morning into a thick grove of trees. They were old trees, tall, and it got very cold and very dark all of a sudden, like you're in the space. And it just reminded me of sometimes the dark places uh, that we have to live through. And with a furrowed brow, I remembered my life and some of the pain there and your life and some of the pain there. But then as in prayer, I lifted my eyes and I looked to the top of the trees and I saw leaves that were waving. And they were just beginning to catch the first rays of the morning sun. And I realized my story is not the only story there is. I live my life in a space that may at times be dark, but it's permeable. There's a transcendent God who could shine his glory into my life and through my life. And I want more of that for me, and I want more of that for you. So I realized that when I see God as he really is, it's hard to feel other than love. How, when I see his grace, can I feel shame? How, when I see his love, can I feel fear? How, when I see his mercy, can I feel pride? How, when I see his power, can I feel weak? How, when I see his glory... Can I withhold adoration? It's just a moment where you just want to lower your voice and take off your shoes. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess we are such outsiders to your story. It's so new to us. It's so at times threatening to us, and yet very inviting. That's why we're here. It's the work of your spirit in our hearts, making us for our sake and for our children's sake and for our parents' sake and for our neighbor's sake, wanting to see more of you and your glory. Thank you for revealing your face to us in Jesus Christ. Now take your Holy Spirit and hallow your name in us that we might love you more and know the nobility of living in second place. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.